We are going to be in Genesis 1.27. I have two verses we're going to go through today, and I'll share for like 35-ish minutes. It's going to be a lot of theology on the front end, but then real life stuff at the end. So just bear with me. I have a question to start us off today. Are humans the most valuable creatures on the planet? Before, yeah, hopefully. It's a true or false. Like, our humans are the most valuable creature. Uh, and obviously, most of us are thinking, uh, yes, they are the most valuable, or true, it's the most valuable. Uh, but that is actually not a very common idea in our world today. If you don't believe me, I can prove it with the use of a single hashtag, uh, hashtag RIP Harambe. Uh, if you remember, yeah, there's like two people who remember, apparently. Well, let me, let me help you remember. Back in May 2016, at the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, there was a gorilla enclosure, and a little boy, three years old, climbed over the enclosure, fell in, and he met a western lowlands mountain gorilla, which is an endangered species. There's less than 100,000 of them on the planet. Uh, And this gorilla was obviously very curious about what this little creature was. He's like, it's too big to be a doll, but it's too small to be a human. I don't know what it is. And the gorilla was being kind of friendly with the kid, but also kind of rough with the kid. Kid's freaking out. Mom's freaking out. Zookeeper's freaking out. Uh, And they ended up making a, a really hard decision. They ended up taking, like, action, drastic action, to save the child's life, and they killed the gorilla. Uh, which all of us should say, good, the child lived, that's what matters. But in our world today, the reaction was very different than what you would expect. Our world today values animals more than they value people. And social media went bananas. People were posting all kinds of horrendous things. People were making online petitions to charge the mom for negligence, which anyone who's ever had kids knows that half the time you don't know where they are. That's just part of raising children, right? And people were trying to, like, they were dragging this family through the mud. And then they were started saying things like, well, there's 8 billion people on the planet and only 100,000 gorillas. Scarcity determines your value. The gorilla should have lived. The child should have died. There's more children. There'll be more children. That, that woman, she can have more children. The callousness of people's responses raises the question as to what determines the value of a human life. In our world today, we would say scarcity, right? Humans matter, but only relative to other things. There's so many of us. There's other things that matter too. But Christians have to answer the question that human lives are valuable because they are made in the image of God. So this idea, though, what what does it mean? What are the qualities or what are the the aspects of the image of God? Because we can say we believe in the image of God, but then what, is, what does it mean? So what I want you to, to walk away with today is the idea that you matter because of how God made you. So we're going to talk about the image of God, but I'm going to try to unpack what I think it means. There's three points this morning or this evening, how God made you, how humans went wrong, and why this matters. So the first one, how God made you, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The passage says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that's where we get this phrase, the image of God. If if you've heard the phrase imago Dei, that is simply the Latin of the same phrase. I don't speak Latin, but I do speak English. So I will consistently say image of God. Occasionally, I will slip up and say imago Dei. They're the same thing. So this image of God 
It is a foundational aspect to what the Bible teaches you about what a human is, a biblical anthropology. What does the Bible teach about the nature, the qualities, the existence of humanity? Well, actually, it teaches a lot. And the foundational idea is that we are made in the image of God. There are two questions that flow from this. What is the image of God, and how do we express the image of God? How do we show the image of God in the world around us? The what question is a question of ontology, which just means what, what is the essence of man? What, what are we? And the simplest way to describe it is with the use of an illustration. Humans are living statues. So you turn to your neighbor and say, you are a living statue. Yeah, it feels weird to say, I know. You're a living statue. Humans reflect God, his character, and some of his attributes in a way that nothing else can. So John Piper, a pastor in the States, uses the phrase, humans are living statues, right? Statues are meant to commemorate someone or something. If you see a, a beautiful statue, we don't celebrate the statue. We celebrate what the statue is a reminder of. And humans are meant to be that. All 8 billion of us existing on this planet are meant to be tiny pictures, tiny statues that draw the attention of all of creation to the God who is there. There is a God who made us. And Everything that we do, everything that we are, points creation to the idea that there is intelligent design. God made us as little statues to point people's attention to him. So you're like, okay, fine, I get it. Uh, I understand that the image of God is this living statue phenomenon. But the second question, I think, is a little bit harder. Uh, how should we understand it? Like, what are the qualities or what are the capacities that make up this image of God? I can tell you, uh, sure, I believe the image of God, but then what does it mean? What does it look like in, in my life? How can you see it evidenced in every human around us? So uh, I think there's three aspects to the, to the image of God, and I'm going to use a teaching tool called triperspectivalism. If you've never heard the word, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's just a teaching tool. If you have heard the word, uh, it, it is meant to, it uses the, a triangle. So I'll just draw one here real quick. Uh, it is the use of a triangle to try to see different angles to the same idea. When we ask the question, what is the image of God? Well, we can answer it a few different ways. So I'm gonna give you three capacities that humans have that are distinct to us, that are expressions of the image of God. The very first one is humans have morals. So we, in our nature, are moral creatures. We have a moral capacity and a moral awareness that is unique to us. Not every creature has this. Uh, I like to watch animal videos on YouTube, sometimes with my son, because he's two years old and he loves animals. Uh, and because I watch videos, the YouTube algorithm will occasionally feed me some stuff that are awesome and then some stuff that is super gory. The other day, it went not awesome, it went to super gory. Uh, I was watching a video of chicks, so then the algorithm decided to feed me a video of a raven eating osprey chicks, which was, I like, it wasn't fun to watch. But the, as I was watching, I was like, change it, because I didn't want Isaiah to see that, as this like, bigger bird just pecks little chicks. Uh, but I'm like, he was kind of curious as to why I changed it, and I was like, that bird murdered the other bird. But as I was reflecting on that, that is an untrue statement. I lied to my son. Birds can't murder other birds. That's just called the circle of life. One bird was hungry and another bird was edible. So, I mean, you do the math. <laughs> Which I, I know, it's graphic, right? Uh, 
but what I want you to see is we see an act of brutality, but because it is two creatures that do not have the image of God, it's just an act of nature. But the Bible actually says something about the same kind of action, very different when a human is included. Genesis 9 talks about this. So Genesis 9 is God speaking to Noah post-flood and saying, this is how creation should work. It was terrible. Three chapters before, every inclination of man was only evil continuously. Stuff was bad. And now I've reset. Okay, this is what life should look like. This is what he says. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, and for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. So there's, there's something special about you, Noah, and creatures made like you, creatures made in the image of God. If something kills you, someone or something, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. So God doesn't distinguish. If an animal kills a human or a human kills a human, it is still murder. Why? Uh, it is whoever sheds the blood of man, verse 6, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What God is saying to Noah is human life is valuable simply because it is human life. And if you take a human life, that is a moral act or an immoral act. Humans have a moral capacity, a moral standard in us imposed by God that no other creature has. So the first aspect of Imago Dei, or the image of God, is that we are moral creatures. The second one is what is called volition. Volition, which is a fancy way, that's an N, might not look like it, but it's supposed to be. Uh, it is a fancy way of saying will. Humans are willful creatures. We have a free will, and we pursue things that we desire, things that we want. So humanity, all of us, every single one of us in this room, we have allegiances and convictions that we have chosen to hold. I myself am a fanatic for Pepsi Cola. I don't drink Coke ever. I spit it out if it tastes my tongue. Uh, I've been in people's houses and they've offered me a Coke and I've slapped it out of their hands uh, and they've not invited me back. I don't know if there's a connection. <laughs> but we choose things that we really value, choose things that we're committed to, and then we follow through on those things. Humans are full of desires, sometimes conflicting desires, and then our pursuit of those desires drives us, right? Today is a gorgeous day. And on a gorgeous day, as the temperature rises, what kind of food do you crave? Ice cream, the correct answer is ice cream. Yeah, I'm like, some, someone over here, I, I don't know, beef jerky, I guess, but no, the answer is ice cream, ice cream. Okay, and you could have like sorry superstore discount bin ice cream or Dairy Queen ice cream. Which one would you rather have? Okay, oh my gosh, <laughs> banter. Okay, tomorrow I'm not gonna ask the crowd. The correct answer was Dairy Queen. A few people said banter. Obviously, they're connected to the owners of banter, gassing up that company. <laughs> For the purposes of the illustration, uh, you want the better ice cream. So you have a desire for superior ice cream, which can be Dairy Queen or can be banter, depending on the person. And as you pursue that superior ice cream, you also have another desire where you're like, do I want to spend $7 for like three minutes of ice cream enjoyment? And you're like, mm, and if I go with someone, now it's $14. And if I'm there, I'm probably getting a cheeseburger. The you know, price tag's going up. So we have desires that are competing and we choose how, when, and 
and where we act on those desires. I might go tonight just because I talked about it and now I, Dairy Queen's on my mind. Uh, I might decide maybe I, maybe I don't go tonight. Maybe I go tomorrow, right? Humans are volitional creatures. We choose things that we want and we go and get it. We see this in scripture all the way in the beginning. Genesis chapter two, verse 16, we see this being worked out. The Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In this passage, we see both the moral aspect of humanity. They're given a command, which they obey or reject. But in the reality that they can obey it or reject it, we see the free will. The humans have the ability, Adam and Eve have the ability to obey God or reject him. They choose their allegiance. Genesis 3, 2 to 6 The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So they seem to understand the moral standards, but the passage continues. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And verse six is a key one. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In the human's behavior, we see them pursuing the thing they wanted. Eve desired, so she went after it. It was good to the eyes. They were both hungry. Their bellies were rumbling and they went after the thing that they wanted. The image of God in us means we are moral creatures we are willful or volitional creatures. And lastly, we are relational creatures. Relation, uh, T-I-O, I'm ESL. So sometimes I get things wrong. We are relational creatures. Every single one of us has been born into a family of origin. And your current family might not look the way you wish it did, but there's only one way for human life to be created, a man and a woman birds and the bees, uh, and then a baby is brought by a stork. Your mom and dad can explain that to you if you need greater biological details. Uh, all of us have families of origin, and on top of that, we are all connected through various webs of social relationships that we need and we want and we long for if we do not have. Humans, by God's design, are relational creatures. Again, we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Chapter two, verse 18 says this. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. This is the only negative statement in the first two chapters of Genesis. Something is missing. Something has fallen short. And that is relationship. He needs a helper. What's interesting in, in this text is often we'll jump from helper right to the end of Genesis 2, and we're like, marriage. Marriage is the helper, which is true to an extent. But the, the, the first attempted meeting of the need is Adam pairing with the animals, with the birds, with the creatures of the ground. So 
what Genesis 2.18 is referring to is, is not marriage, but just relationship at its most basic level. Marriage is a deeper relationship, but most fundamentally, it is simply a relationship. God's design for humanity is that we would be relational creatures with other humans. God made us that way. When Adam was by himself, God said, this is not good. And I'm going to make another human because no animal is good enough to meet the relational need of these image bearers. Genesis 2.23 makes it even more clear. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This human, this woman, she's just like me. She shall, leave, or she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the Genesis 2.24 is one of the clearest marriage texts, but 2.23 leads into 2.24, and it's not talking about marriage. It's talking broadly about relationship. God made humans, male and female, to coexist, to live near and around each other, to be born into the same families and grow up together and be in relationship with one another. Verse 18 says we're, we need helpers. We need to be around other people. That's the language of partnership. And then even verse 24, the holding fast, that's, that's a relationship. Even before the sexual intimacy of marriage, married people have to be friends. They have to be connected, right? In, in the marriage class that we teach here at Northview, we use the language of companionship. If you are a married couple, your very first goal on, after pursuing a, a relationship with the Lord is together, we want to merge our lives. We want to be friends. That's God's design. God's design for people is that we would be connected to one another when we ask the question as to how God made you, the answer is obviously God made you in the image of God. And that image has three, or three aspects to it. We are moral, volitional, and relational creatures. But the world around us is quite distorted. So I want to go to Colossians 121. We're going to jump a whole bunch of chapters in the Bible. And I want to show you how humans went wrong. Colossians 1, 21 to 22 says this. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him or, or before God. What this passage is, is showing, it doesn't use the language of image of God, but this passage gives us words to understand the distortion in the image of God that we see around us. I want to quickly define what I mean by distortion. Uh, by distortion, I don't mean that we become less image of God, or Im I'm not trying to imply that if we do the right things, we can become more image of God. Image of God is ontology. It's just simply what we are. What I mean by distortion is that through our actions, through the way that we exist, we can make it more or less clear that we are functioning the way God created us to be. I want to give you an example of what this looks like in our world. Uh, there has been a group of, of activists floating around Europe recently uh, that are protesting climate change. Uh, and there's a couple different groups. There's one called Just Stop Oil in the UK, and then another one called Last Generation in Germany. And their chosen method of starting the conversation is that they go to museums and take food and throw it on famous pieces of art which is bananas. It is a weird way to start a conversation, uh, but I guess it has worked because I'm talking about it. 
And their intent in throwing the, the food on there is to, to deface it, to, to make it not visible. They're like, this is all getting ruined, just like the world around us is getting ruined. So Just Stop Oil went to a, a London museum and they threw tomato soup on a Van Gogh, right? A painting worth millions of dollars. Last generation went to a, a museum in Monet or in Potsdam and they threw mashed potatoes on a Monet. So you have million dollar millions of dollars of value in these paintings now covered by food. If you looked, they, were, they weren't harmed, they're, they're covered in glass, but as you look at the painting, you can still see what's under there. It's just a little bit harder to see. It's distorted. This is what happens to us. We say and do and live in such a way that we end up covered in tomato soup and mashed potatoes. And when you can still see, you know what we are. We're, we're humans. We're made in the image of God. But it's harder to see what we are meant to be. So I want to show you using the language of Colossians 1.21 that the three ways that God made us in his image, moral, volitional, relational, have been distorted as a result of sin entering the world, right? That passage in Colossians 1 is reflecting not just on how broken we are, but on how Jesus reconciles us through, through the cross, through his sacrificial death. But there's three words that I want to emphasize from verse 21. The first is morality becomes subjective. So I'm just going to sub, I'll learn out of space. So morality becomes subjective. Uh, the image of God is distorted in us in what we know. We have moral standards imposed on us by God. We have a moral capacity built into us by God. And yet, in the language of Colossians 1.21, we are hostile in mind. Uh, this phrase, I think, People read it and they think, yeah, it's because I pick fights with people. I'm like, I don't think that's what it means. I, it, I think the hostility is related towards external standards. We dislike other people telling us how to live. We really dislike if that other person isn't even near. And if that other person is a spiritual being who transcends time and space, how dare he tell us how to live? Functionally, this is how morality gets distorted in our world. We reject all external standards, especially God's law, and live the way that we want. Sharon James, a Christian thinker, says this, 60% of emerging adults interviewed expressed a highly individualistic approach to morality. They said that morality is a personal choice, entirely a matter of individual decision. Moral rights and wrongs are essentially matters of individual opinion in their view. Mark quoted this a few weeks ago when we were talking about, like, do, are we going to believe this book? And so many people reject it. We distort the image of God, humanity distorts the image of God, in that we reject his moral standards. The second way that it's distorted is volition becomes selfish. We, we become our desires that still guide us, become tremendously inward-focused. The language of Colossians 1.21 is that humans are alienated. We say and do things that drive us away from other people. We make selfish choices and then blame the painful consequences on other people. Cynical Theories is, is a great book that tries to address this phenomenon in our society where all of us believe that we determine our future. And yet at the same time, all we can do is point at everything broken around us. Uh, this is what they wrote. We continually read that patriarchy, white supremacy, imperialism, cis normativity, heteronormativity, ableism, and fat phobia are literally structuring society and infecting everything. 
And they must be constantly identified, condemned, and dismantled so that things might be rectified. We have never been more free to pursue our desires. We've never been more celebrated. That's what we're doing this month as a, as a culture. We are celebrating as people pursue their desires. And at the same time, we have never been more selfish. Our desires are purely selfish, or not, maybe not always purely selfish, but they're always affected by this inward bent. Our volition becomes distorted. Lastly, our relationship gets replaced by solitude. We are made to be together. We are made to be around other people. And yet we say and do things in the language of Colossians 121. We do evil deeds that in their nature break relationship. That's what sin does. Sin breaks relationship between us and God and between us and each other. We are made to be together right? Genesis 2.18, Genesis 2.23 and 24. And yet we say and do things that break relationships apart. I want to give you an example. Uh, We're all going to do this together. Imagine with me that you are in high school, which for some of you was a few years ago. Some of you might still be in high school, so it's not hard to imagine. Uh, You're in high school and you have a friend who likes to talk about me. Not not me, like Freddie, but like they talk about themselves. Uh, Your friend is not a great listener, They're not tremendously considerate. Uh, They're not really empathetic. They're not generally nice. Uh, But you both like Taylor Swift, so you vibe, as they say. So you have this friend. And you go to this friend, and you're feeling very sad. You're feeling very mournful. You're like, man, my dog died. And they're like, let me tell you about true suffering. I have two cats, and they both died on the same day. Two is more than one. You don't understand suffering. My cats are more valuable than your stupid dog, and they make it about me. Uh, on a different day, you go to your friend and you're like, dude, I was hoping to make the volleyball team and I was this close, but I got cut. I lost the last spot. And they're like, dude, let me tell you, being on the team isn't that amazing. Let me tell you about me. Uh, I'm on the team and the coach's kid took my starting spot, which is total BS. Uh, How is that fair? Uh, I have so much more struggles than you. It's about me again. In this hypothetical scenario, or maybe it's not that hypothetical, uh, how much do you think you will be friends with this person post high school? Like on a scale of one to 10. Negative 100, right? You're like, the moment I'm done, you and me are done, right? We're, we're over. You've been terrible the entire, no matter how much they love Taylor Swift, that cannot keep two people together, <laughs> right? We say and do things that break relationships. This is a lighthearted example, right? To minimizing suffering. But all of us have suffered tremendous hurt from people near us. Many of our families are tremendously broken because of the actions of people in our families. God made us to be together, and yet we are constantly alone. Our morals, our volition, and our relationships are all distorted. God made us to be a certain way, and yet when we see us, when we look in the mirror, all we see is tomato soup and mashed potatoes. So what hope is there for us? Well, when you look through scripture, there is actually one example of one human who was made in the image of God, who fully reflected every aspect of the image of God. We fall short in morals, volition, and relationship, but Jesus did not. Jesus kept every single command God ever imposed on any man ever. Jesus was perfect in regards to morality, tempted like us, but never 
in sin. Uh, Jesus willfully obeyed God. Jesus could have done anything he wanted, but he said, not my will, but your will be done. His will was to obey the Father. Jesus had perfect morals, perfect volition, and lastly, Jesus spent his life maintaining relationship with people he knew were going to do things that would break relationship with him. And then in his death, his entire purpose for dying, as Colossians 1.22 says, is to reconcile people who are far from God to him. We have broken relationship. Jesus came to fix that relationship. And then his entire life was modeling patience in relationships. Jesus reflected God perfectly in a way that none of us do. And of course, we know he did this because he was both God and man. Col or Colossians. John 1.18 says this, no one has ever seen God. You can't, you can't see God. He's, or he's, he's up there. He's in heaven. He's eternal. He's non-physical. But you can see Jesus. The only God who's at the Father's side, he, Jesus, he, being Jesus, has made him known. Jesus came to be that living statue that showed us very clearly what God is actually like. Jesus offers restoration to distorted image bearers like you and me. We fall short in morals, volition, and relationship, but Jesus offers us eternal life. Humans are moral, volitional, relational, and it's been distorted, but God offers restoration. So now we go to the third point here in these last six minutes. Uh, why does this matter? Why did we spend so much time on theology? You need the theology where you can jump into the real world and deal with the massive moral dilemmas of our day. So many, maybe we could say all, of the moral missteps of our culture come down to bad thinking about identity. What are we? How should we view ourselves? How should we understand ourselves? I want to quickly cover some lies our culture believes and contrast it with truths that Christians must believe. And then I want to look at two examples where we see this distorted image of God working itself out in our society. So very quickly, these lies versus truths. Our culture believes that humans are good just the way we are, right? Our morality is subjective. I'm fine. I don't need to change. And yet Christians know that humans were made good, but are now distorted by sin. That's the whole story of Genesis 3. Things have gone sideways. That's why Colossians 1.22 is written. Someone needs to fix it. And Jesus did that. Secondly, uh, our culture believes that we can make our own truth, right? We just pursue what feels right. We pursue what we need. Uh, but the Bible reminds us that God is the source of truth. John 17 says that your word is truth. Third, a liar culture believes is that personhood requires production, right? People really only matter once they can do stuff. That's when they become people. That's when personhood, this idea becomes attained. But until then, we're just blobs. We just exist. We're cosmic stardust. But we know that personhood is part of the image of God. That was the whole argument of Genesis 9. You cannot kill another human because they are made in the image of God. Lastly, a life with pain is not worth living. And yet Christians know, and you would know if you've been reading through the Northview reading plan with us, as we just finished Colossians, or 2 Corinthians, the entire book, 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that pain has a purpose in God's plans. So our culture believes these lies, and we have truths to confront it from the scripture. But I want to give you two specific examples, like two specific places, moral dilemmas that our society is facing, that we see the distortion of the Imago Dei leading to bad thinking. So the first one 
is euthanasia, or what we call it, medical assistance in dying, right? The medical assistance in dying is simply a more palatable term, but we are killing someone, which according to Genesis 9 is a person made in the image of God. According to Genesis 127 is a person made in the image of God. We see the distortion that you would see here of these subjective morals, of these selfish uh, volition and broken relationships in the fact that the justification that we give is what groups like Dying with Dignity, an advocacy group for your right to take your own life. Uh, it is your life, it is your choice. That's their slogan. If you looked them up, that's what you'll find. Uh, we see the distortion of the Imago Dei in the morals in the sense that we, we are making this decision uh, because we do what feels right. I know what I want. I know what I need. It feels right to me. It feels right for my situation. You don't know my situation. You don't know my story. You don't know my pain. In regards to volition, we see that des our desires are often driven towards what is easy or economical. Uh, we, we don't want to bear with someone who's in tremendous pain. We don't want to see someone we love suffer. Our desire is to take the easy road, to take the cheaper road. Lastly, in terms of relationship, we just have a low tolerance for pain. Uh, we don't want to suffer the hurt of broken relationship. Death breaks a relationship. So in people's decision-making around made, we see the distortion of the image of God alive and at work. The same is true of abortion, right? We're doing end of life and beginning of life. The same is true of abortion, where we use similar language, not quite so uh, slogany as it's your life, it's your choice, but we hear phrases, you see them on billboards, it's my body, it's my choice. People make decisions that show the distortion of the image of God. Again, our morality is driven by what feels right. We do what makes sense to us. Our volition is driven by the collision between what we want and what others around us want. And, and you would know, of course, that the, the decision to take a child's life is not made in a vacuum. Potential mothers have to make that decision in the face of opposition from the father of that child, from the family, from their own dreams. There's a multiplicity of desires that are driving them and pulling them towards a variety of things. We see the distortion of the image of God Lastly, in terms of relationship, this tends to happen where there have already been broken relationships. Women who are alone turn to this as an escape. We see the distortion of the image of God as our society makes poor choices in regards to end of life and beginning of life. But if we're going to jump in as Christians, if we want to address these topics, we need to have a very firm foundation before we jump in. So I want to give you biblical foundations for every aspect of our image of God, for our morals, our volition, and our relationship. As moral creatures, we need moral standards. Psalm 19 verse 7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. What scripture tells us is that the law of God leads to life, right? That's reviving the soul. That's what it means. It leads to life. And it makes simple people wise. How can we jump into incredibly complex situations? Well, if we start from the Bible, if the Bible forms our morality, not the world around us. In regards to volition, uh, volition, our wills need a, a desire, need a, a target. They need a goal to pursue, what we would call a telos. We need a heart that is going after something good. But we recognize, of course, that we don't always feel that inside of us. So what we need is a new heart with new desires that pursues a new goal. 
That's what God has done for us. If you're a Christian, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 is about you. And it says this, I will give you, God is saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. That last phrase, cause you to obey. God is saying this new heart is gonna give you new desires that drive you in a new direction. New morals, new volition. Lastly, new relationship. Our relationships need purpose. Why are we together? Why are we connected? What are we hoping to build or do together? Galatians 6.10 reminds us that we are made to know God and serve both God and other people. This is what it says. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God's design for our relationships is that we would be service-minded people, both to the church around us and to the world around us. If we understand these things as forming our, our image of God, our morals are formed from God's word. Our desires come from a new heart given to us by God. And our purpose in relationships is to serve those around us. We can jump into these questions at end of life and beginning of life. In regards to euthanasia, uh, we know that humans are made in the image of God. So we ought to attempt to preserve life no matter how sick, no matter how old. Our moralities would come from the place that human life is valuable because of the image of God imprinted on us. That is what we are. Genesis 127 teaches that clearly. Our volition, our will would be to do what is good, to do what is right, even when it's hard. And our relationship is an opportunity to serve the weak and hurting. A Christian who is letting the Bible form their morals, volition, and relationship approaches the question of made a little bit differently, maybe a lot differently from the culture around us. The same is true in abortion, where we understand that humans are made in the image of God, regardless of how viable they are or they are not. Production does not add or subtract to the value of a human life. And if we approach this question from the position of an image of God formed by God's word, we know human life is valuable, Genesis 127. We want to do what is good and right, even if it's really hard. And our desire in terms of relationship is to support people who need a tremendous amount of help. There are organizations, Christians have been on the forefront of helping women in distress to choose life. No one can do that on their own. So in both of these examples, we, the reason that I wanted to show you this as, as the image of God is if we're able to address these massive questions from a position not of being better than someone, but of attempting to bring clarity to the image of God in a given situation, we can act in a way that brings life. We can act in the way God intended us to be, fruitful and flourishing. If we are gonna be flourishing people, we need a foundation for flourishing. So very quickly, I just wanna give you two reminders. I know this is a lot of theology and some very, very real world application in it, or really uh, real world examples. But I think when we hear all this, we're like, bro, uh, it, it might be easy for you from the pulpit to say some stuff, right? But when I'm talking to a real person that's making a real decision about end of life or beginning of life, it's a lot harder than quoting a verse and saying image of God, Right? So if we're going to have a firm foundation, how do we form that? How do we form that so that it's not just one conversation, 
but multiple conversations, and we might even know what to say. I think there's two quick steps. For us to have this firm foundation, uh, we need to spend time in God's word daily. There is no shortcut. You can't give biblical answers to the moral dilemmas of our day if you don't know the Bible. And our reality is that we are so distracted by so many things, both things of the world and even Christian things where we can listen to millions of podcasts and read lots and lots of books. But we need to spend time in God's word daily because there is no shortcut. The only thing that can form a biblical worldview is the Bible. So you need to read it. Secondly, we need to gather with God's people regularly. If God made us to be in relationship, we're going to have a really hard time making the hard decisions that might be required of us if we think we're in this alone. We need to be around our Christian brothers and sisters. Church services are a start. Serving is even better. Participating with other people in spiritual, spiritually formative things is best. My hope for you is that as you understand that humans are moral, volitional, relational, you would A, both see the value of human life. One human life is worth more than 100,000 mountain gorillas, no matter how endangered they are. And B, you would be moved to step into conversations with people where you see the image of God being distorted. Because as you know, it is constantly distorted in our world. Human lives are valuable because they are made in the image of God. What you need to know more than anything else today is that you matter because of how God made you. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'll invite the worship team back up. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, Father, that challenges us. Lord, we, we recognize that the reality of the value of human life is not a universal truth in today's world. We recognize that the church clashes with culture in how we address some of these decisions in regards to made, in regards to abortion. Lord, we want wisdom, we want patience, we want grace for the people we interact with. And Lord, we want a strong biblical foundation. So I pray for every single person here. Lord, I don't know their stories. I don't know what their experience has been with these moral questions, but I do know that they're made in the image of God. And I do know that your will for them is that they would know you and know who they are. So Father, strengthen everyone here. We wanna know you better so we can serve you more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.